when I started working, I started realizing like people didn't sound like me. People weren't as loud as have as big of a personality as I do. And so I had to start suppressing that because I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously. So by the time I got to this position in Dallas, I think I suppressed so much of myself that that's what I was focused on. Because then it was, like I said, it was kind of the opposite code switching because as soon as I started letting people see my personality and because it was such a diverse team management wasn't diverse but the teams were diverse and as soon as I started letting the team see my personality it was like people started to like me people started to understand me and they're like why didn't you let us see this part why didn't you let us know this is who you were But then when I would have to go into meetings with management, I would have to code switch back to that person, Mm -hmm. back to that like business focused person. Yo, 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 what up y'all? Dímelo mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Quien Tu Eres podcast brought to you by Plural. The clip you just heard in the intro was from this week's episode with our very special guest, Jessica. Before getting into the full episode, let me give you a quick little bio on Jessica. Jessica grew up in the suburbs of San Diego and has always had a curiosity for other people and their stories. As far back as she can remember, she would be the first to approach a new student at school, introduce herself, and want to know all about them. Not much has changed as her curiosity has lent itself to learning more about the world around her. These days, she has a full-time job, which you'll hear more about, but is also the founder and host of the Wine and Cheesement podcast. She specifically created the podcast to amplify the voices of those from the BIPOC community to share their stories on career, love, life, and so much more. Well, now that you know a little bit more about Jessica, let's just get into the episode. talking and I was saying how I've met so many people from New York on Clubhouse mm-hmm. you know another one in Mosul another New Yorker so I'm like dang like I just I, I'm building a whole new tribe in, in New York I don't know if it's, there's something telling me something or what but we'll see yeah well funny <laughs> enough I really I really appreciate him for various reasons but one reason in particular is that I don't, know, I don't know if you noticed, but um, I don't have that many guys that I've interviewed for my podcast. And it's not because I don't ask. It's because women tend to be more open and vulnerable to have these sort of conversations where yeah. men are kind of like scared. Like every single man that I have interviewed, they've either asked me to remain anonymous, only use a first name, or um, just like say like, I need more time to practice you know, prepare my answers and stuff like that. Whereas women are just, and like, I understand that there are certain reasons why you want to remain anonymous and like, you know, fears for certain things. You know, I definitely, I'm not, I'm not like here to like, I'm not making fun of any of that, but it's just interesting. Like women just don't give a fuck. They're just like, yo, when tomorrow let's do it. And I'm just like, oh (laughs) shit. All right. Where I just feel like I need to, I need to do a little bit more of the selling for men. Um, But Mozo was one of those dudes where he was just like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. You want to do a live on Instagram? Let's go. 
I don't know if you were in this room because this is when I knew I wanted him on the podcast is we were in a room and there was one of the girls in the room was talking about how she was slut shamed and how there was rumors being started about her when she was younger. And another guy came in and started turning it around. Like, well, like, well, why didn't your friend stick up for you or why didn't? And then he's like, well, you know, somebody accused me of, of rape when I didn't do. And it was just like really weird, the turnaround of that. And then Moso stopped him. He's like, yo, you know, I just need to stop you right there. Cause the girls were, you could tell we were all getting really upset cause it was just a weird transition. It wasn't like, you know, and he was like, I need to stop you right there. Like you cannot compare yourself and blah, blah, blah. And he just really in a very nice yet firm way, like stopped the situation. And at that moment I was like, follow over to Instagram. Hey, yo, like, let's have this conversation. He was like, yeah, totally. So it was, I really, I think, I know I appreciated that. And I'm sure so many of the other women appreciated him stepping in because to be perfectly honest, that does not happen very, and it's sad to say, but it does not happen very often, especially in public spaces where you have a guy intervene and say like, yo, what you're saying is not right. And you need to take a step back. And it's, it's sad that all of us, like, it's wonderful and sad at the same time that all of us were just like, like taking a breath. Yeah. yeah. And that's when I was like, we need it. I totally need to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Well, in many ways, you know, he's, he's an ally to a group of people that he doesn't necessarily identify with. And I'm sure we'll yeah. get into that as well. Right. Like, I'm sure he was, I'm sure he was the minority in that case, right? Like, there are a bunch of women in in the, in the in on on that conversation in that room dealing with like similar issues and and wanting to step up but in many ways like he stepped up and said something right um and that even happens to me in a bunch of corporate spaces where like you know i'm like someone mispronounces my name right and like i'm just like ah whatever but but someone else is like no this is how you say pabell's name and i was like oh thank you and like when someone else does it i'm like you know what if they could step up for me, I should be able to step up for myself kind of thing. Um, and obviously, like, I'm not saying, obviously, there are dynamics at place, right? Like, um, but it's, it's, I think, like, when you see someone do something, it sort of gives other people the courage to do the same as well. Uh, um, no, totally. So do you say, because in my head, I want to say Pavel. That's what yeah, yeah, I yeah. Is that, so that's instantly like, and you said Pablo, and I was like, wait, am I not saying it right? I want to say Pavel. <laughs> <laughs> no pavel pavel is like the perfect the, the, one okay 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 <laughs> but in corporate america i feel like i need to translate it to english and that's like the only english pronunciation that i could do that's a whole yeah. other conversation that we get into around like name pronunciations and like yeah oh, but pavel, yes. Yes. Pavel, pavel, I, yeah for sure we'll get into that because i have that challenge with my last name oh let, let's get into it though um you know when, when people tell you to be your authentic self or when you hear the word authenticity you know what comes to mind for you you know, I was thinking about this because we talked about it last week mm-hmm. and I feel like it's evolved. That mm-hmm. might sound really weird, but I think as I have aged, it has evolved because I think when you're in your twenties, you think you're authentic, but you're really just kind of going with everybody else. At least I was, I'm not going to, you know, I think most of us do, right. We're trying to find who we are and we tend to 
get involved in group think and kind of just mm-hmm. go with what everybody else is going. Then I feel like towards your end of your twenties, heading into your thirties, you start real, you start really truly finding out who you are. You've had those bumps and bruises from your twenties. You've maybe had some, you know, relationships that haven't gone the best, or maybe they have, or you're learning something different about yourself. And now that I'm in my forties, which yeah, I know. Be shocked. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay. Yes, I'm 43 now. <laughs> okay. But now that I'm in my 40s, I just feel that my, when I think of my authentic self is who I've been trying to find and I finally am. Because I will continue to evolve as a person, but the core of who I am has not really ever changed. And I think that I, it became a place where it's something I'm comfortable with. I'm somebody who I truly love. Are there things where I wish like I could be this or that? Of of course, we all have insecurities, but I no longer let my insecurities rule me Yeah. to become who I authentically am anymore. Yeah. Talk to me about that, that core that you reference or like do certain values come up? Do certain like life, like do certain lessons that your family taught you? Like what comes up to you? Um, well, to the core of who I am, I'm very, I've always been a very empathetic person. I've always been somebody who wants to learn about others and who wants to learn about everything around me. Curiosity, I guess, is the yeah. best way to kind of sum that up. I've always just been a very curious person. And that is lent itself in a very, it, you know, it could be when I was younger, I felt like that was something that was used against me because people would always say I was talking too much. I was asking too many questions. I was this, I was that. It was, it was, I was too much, right? When I was younger, being as curious as I am was considered being too much. But now, but I think it's lent itself in a good way because I always want to know things about me and about myself, about other people, about the world. And how can we become true global citizens and people who contribute to the lives of others if we're not curious. Yeah. I mean, how are we supposed to learn if we don't ask the questions, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm so curious too, like, when did you feel as if you were too much? Like, did, is that something you were telling yourself, like in your head? Because we all have like oh, these no, stories. No, no, I was these, told like, that as a child. Oh, okay, okay. As a child, I was told that all the time because I was always very boisterous. I was always very loud, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being Latina, but then being like, I don't, I don't even know just I'm very much my mother's daughter in that way, just big personality, very loud. And then I would finish something and I would get bored. So thankfully, I will say this, thankfully they didn't have like ADD or ADHD. Those weren't things when I was younger, when I was growing up, because I'm positive I would have been labeled that. But it wasn't that I couldn't concentrate. I would just get my stuff done before anybody else and then I would get up and start moving around because what six seven eight year old is just going to sit there when they've done the work that they were supposed to do right so every report card was Jessica's so pleasant but she talks too much but she's this but she like so I was told that as a child all the time that I was too much Mm -hmm. and I was always that kid where if a new person came in 
I was like, hi, I'm Jessica. How are you? Where are you from? Tell me your story. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> so, you know, that, that part definitely has not changed in regards to me. That's still the core of who I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. You mentioned like to, you know, to your core, like they're still there, but as you grew older, slightly, um, like some of that changed a little bit. You tried to more so like fit in and go with the flow of people. Like what part of you started to shift a little bit as you grew older versus what remained the same? I think I was really insecure in middle school. I was bullied a lot in middle school. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to fit in. So yeah. I was still, yeah, I was still that curious person. So if a new kid in school came in, I would like introduce myself. But I think I also, because I was bullied, I would also make those attempts to bully as well. Like, mm -hmm kind of reflect that off deflect from me onto somebody else yeah. um i was not the skinniest of kids and i mm. would get made fun of for my and but i wasn't like the chunkiest of kids either right yeah. but because i let myself shut down and i wasn't like my big personality self during those years yeah i would let people make fun of me and i would call my mom in middle, like at lunchtime, asking her to come pick me up. Because I remember one time somebody told, said that I was as big as the back of a, the backseat of a car. Wow. And then another kid said, fuck that. She's the whole damn car. Wow. And obviously that still like hit, it hits in her because that was in seventh grade and I'm 43 years old. And I still remember, I remember where we were. We were next to the little theater. I remember who was there. I remember like, I can see it in my head clear as day that moment. And when you want to fit in so badly, I think you become, you either allow yourself to get bullied because you're afraid of saying being yourself yeah. Or you become the bully. And I had a little bit of both, but for the most, for most of my time in middle school, I, you know, I was, I was bullied and I didn't, I wasn't that curious person, that curious kid. I wasn't mm -hmm. that vocal, big personality kid. I really shut myself down during that time. That's, I mean, it's so unfortunate and, you know, bullying happens everywhere, but it's, for me, it's so fascinating because I go to therapy every week and there's always a reoccurring theme in therapy. It's just like, there's always something that happened to us like very early on that like for some people just like, oh, whatever, that was just an incident. But for us, it's like that impacts us for the rest of our lives. You know what I mean? Like the fact that you can Absolutely. think about like what you were wearing and like the surroundings and like where you were isn't it crazy just like certain incidents like carry with us forever? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I have another instance when I was a freshman in high school that I still remember from a teacher. So this is why I said, like, I was always told I was too much, whether yeah. I was too quote unquote big, too fat, too big, too big yeah. of a personality, too talkative, too everything. And I had an English teacher and you know what? I'm going to say her name because I don't even care because this happened to me and her name was Mrs. Turrentine at Orange Glen High School in Escondido. <laughs> like I have zero qualms of saying it because like she's, she's retired, but this is a true story because I came home crying to my mom after this. Wow. And 
a lot of Latinas, particularly a lot of young Latina girls experience this from this woman. She, she mentally tormented us. Wow. And I had, she was the cheer coach as well as an English teacher. And I grew up, I was a Pop Warner cheerleader. So I'm like, yes, I get to high school. I want to cheer and everything. And I was in her English class and me thinking, oh my gosh, I'm in her English class. She's going to get to know me. She's going to love me because teachers always liked me for the most part. Yeah. She hated me. She would always, me and the other Latinas that were in the class, what she would always pick on us. I don't know. Somehow I would always manage every time, like we would get a, a progress report. I'm like, I've never gotten anything lower than a B on anything, but how am I managing a C? She knew I wanted to cheer. And one day, I don't remember what we were doing. One day she took me outside of her, the classroom, right outside the classroom and told me to my face that she didn't want bimbos like me on her cheer squad. Whoa. I am 13 years old. And I have a teacher telling me, calling me a bimbo to my face and that she didn't want me on her cheer squad. Wow. That's why I said, I'm going to call out her name. Cause I don't care. Yeah. Because That's, yeah. it was, it was torture being in her class. And so many of us have the worst memories of being in her class because she treated us like crap. And again, I remember that day clearly when she took me out and I, my jaw dropped Yeah. and I went home to my mom crying because now I'm being bullied by a teacher. Yeah. And my mom was like pissed off. I'm going to call. I'm going to, and I'm like, no, 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 because she's my teacher. She's going to end up messing with my grade. And yeah, you know. Una pendeja thinking of my grade instead of like what that could have done. But I mean, ultimately it worked out for its best because I used that moment. Like I used it for a while as I think I used that for a while as fuel, right? Like, okay, yeah, you'll see. And I ended up transferring schools and made the cheer squad there. I, you know, ended up coaching, cheerleading. I've ended up doing all of these really awesome things that and she has nothing to do with it except being the fuel in my head like you know in my head where i'm basically like fuck you bitch i'm gonna show you yeah you want to see who's a bimbo that's not me right kind that's kind of how i've used it and there's been times i think i was able to use that in that way and for a while probably when i was in high school i probably let it get me down Mm -hmm. but i always remember it and when I use it now and I don't really use that as feel now, but when I think of it now, I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> nah, but that, that's a real fear though. And that's a constant theme that I hear as well is, you know, there are certain people in power and, you know, it may be culturally as well, but culturally it's like, Oh, don't make too much noise. Stay under the radar. Um, just do what you got to do and just like, keep it going. Um, and for us to stand up for ourselves, there's the poss- there's the fear of repercussions. You know what I mean? Like they have, the power to pass or fail us in many ways, right? Potentially, yeah. I don't know. Or like send us to detention. That's why I didn't want my mom to say anything because I yeah. wasn't sure how it was going to affect me in school. And what if she told other teachers? Yeah. You know, that was a real fear for me then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And tell me, tell me more about just like how you got out of that, um, that 
I don't know if I want to call it a phase or situation, because you said in many ways that you use that as a catalyst or like a fuel to to continue doing some of the amazing things that you went on to do. Like, did that continue to carry you or like what got you out of that? I think once I left that school, once I knew I didn't have to see her again, that helped, to be perfectly honest. Um, I went to a different school within the same city and I cheered there. And then we ended up moving to Albuquerque, New Mexico for less than two years. And I graduated there. It, it, I don't think I used that for a super long time in regards to that, that moment as a freshman with that teacher, but I definitely used it during high school. And I think I was, even though I remember it, I don't think that's a thing I will ever forget. That was no, I think I put that to rest at the same time. Like I was like, this no longer, this no longer serves me. I'm beyond that, but I'll never forget it. But I'm beyond that. Yeah. It's interesting too, because when I think of cheerleading, like there's a certain level of confidence that you have to have to be doing that. So here you are being bullied and people doubting you, yet you're still out there with the lights and people watching you. Like there's always a crowd of people, you know what I mean? Um, So I feel like something else to your core has to be just like natural confidence. I... I probably, I think, I definitely feel like people always think I'm super confident, which I think there's definitely an element to that, but I'm also like inside probably like, ah! Ah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) But I, again, I say I owe that to my mom because the first, me and my mom have a really interesting bond. The first three, almost four years of my life, it was just me and her. And then she met my dad and they got married Mm -hmm. And for the first almost five years of my life before I had a sibling. And my mom has always told me since I was young, as far back as I can remember, that I can do anything, that I'm strong. She wants me to be independent. She wants me. And I even remember like being in middle school, I think, where she once told me, you know, if anything ever happened to your dad, I don't know what I would do. Because my mom was that mom who... We were fortunate. My my parents somehow made it work, but where my dad was the only one who had a full-time regular gig, my mom would sometimes get bored and be like, oh, I'm going to get a job. And then she'd be there for a couple months and be like, oh, I hate it. And then quit. (laughs) (laughs) But so she was for the most part, a stay at home mom. And so she was very involved in the things that we did. She was always the team mom. She was always the mom picking me and my friends up and taking us places and doing all of this. But there was a very specific moment that I still remember that she told me that if something happened to my dad, she doesn't know what she would do because she doesn't have the education. She doesn't have a regular job. She, she, she was like, I feel like I would fail and I don't want that for you. I don't want you to ever depend on something, somebody else for your life and your livelihood. Yeah. And she kind of constantly in small ways reinforced that. Right. And as hard as my mom was on me when I did stuff that wasn't like, if I messed up cheerleading or in softball or anything, believe me, my mom was the first one to call me out. (laughs) Like, and half the time I wouldn't hear her because when you're in that zone, you're in that zone. 
But after the game, she'd be like, you did this and you did, I, that's why I'd be like, I, I don't want to hear it. I know what I did. You know, I don't want to hear it. Uh, but she was also the one who's like, Jay, you can do better. I know you can do better. Like yeah. you're better than that. You're better than this. And you're, and I know you can. And that I know you can like, and you are better. I yeah. think probably was internalized at some point. Yeah giving me giving me that confidence to be able to go for the things that I want to go for um and keep pushing through I mean there's been a lot of failures in my life yeah. for sure sure yeah but there's also been a lot of successes and and without like and I know people say that but it's really true like without the failures the successes aren't as sweet if you don't ever fail <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. It hits different when you fail and then you get to come back. You know what I mean? Yes, right? I, that's so like dope. That LL I, I, cool J, don't call it a comeback, right? <laughs> like, because you're there, you're still fighting. <laughs> I, got, yeah. I got you. I got your New York for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Got to always throw in a, a New York reference. Um, <laughs> I love that. I mean, especially as a woman being told that, you know, you can do whatever you want. You know what I mean? And as a as a latina being told that you can do whatever you want i think that's so important especially at a young age to be told that but it's so interesting that she told you or like at a very early age she you know was trying to teach you the value of like defending for yourself be independent you know financially independent as well like what did how did that impact you as you move forward like did you try to go get a job quickly did you have certain things or careers that you wanted to go into because of that or like did you feel any pressure in that way um, I don't know. You know what? I think all the pressure I always felt up until a certain point, a lot of it came from myself. Mm. Um, my parents were never like, you have to go to college. You have to do this. I think they just expected it because <laughs> I expected it of myself. Right. And yeah. I was always wanting to be like, for example, when I was in eighth grade, I wanted to be in a higher math class because the math class I felt was too easy. And I asked the teacher, the teacher said, no, I was like, who do I go to that? They said, no. And they're like, you have to have your parents request it. So I go to my mom and dad. I said, this math is too easy. I want to be in pre-algebra because I want to be wow. in algebra when I'm a freshman. Good for you. I would have stayed in fractions. <laughs> and my mom was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, you know, it's going to be harder. I'm like, yeah, I want it to be harder. And she's like, okay. And she went with me to the school and she's like, my daughter wants to be in a, the next step math class. And they're like, are you sure? And my mom says, she says she can handle it. Yes. So my mom was always somebody who did advocate for me. Like she would ask me, are you sure? And if I really wanted it, my mom would, would advocate for me in that. And I did. And freaking, I got to be in the class. I had no problem. Like I loved algebra. I loved free algebra and I loved algebra. And I would have had to go to some, in order to get to where I wanted to be, I would have had to go to summer school and take math to be in algebra my freshman year. I don't want to do that. Like, that's silly. Instead, I was still kind of nerdy, right? But I was like, cool nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was a cheerleader. I played softball. I was cool nerdy. But I went to summer school before my freshman year to get history out of the way so I could be in a class that would help me prep for college. Mm. So my, it was, called avid and i don't know if they have avid in new york but they um 
It's called, it's advanced. It starts for, it stands for advancement via individual determination. So they ensure that you're in college um, prep courses. You, they, you are constantly taking PSA, prepping for the SATs and you're taking PSATs. You get tutoring for the things that you need help in and you do college tours. So I started doing college tours. Actually, my first college tour was when I was in eighth grade. Wow. That's so early. Yeah. So I already, so I think my parents didn't pressure me to go to college because they already saw that. Like, these are the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you had the vision so early on, which is so dope. Yeah. But then life happens because everything that I thought was going to happen in my life didn't because we moved to New Mexico and we Mm. lost our California residency. Mm. Because after you're gone for more than one year, you lose your residency. So we moved back and I had got accepted to UNM, but I didn't want to stay in New Mexico. I hated it there. I hated it in New Mexico. And coming back, I, we had to wait in, I had to wait an entire year before I could qualify to get lower prices to go to college again. Yeah. And that, I think that whole thing just changed the trajectory of my life. Because you had because to put, put it on hold, essentially? Yeah, I had to put it on hold. I started working and I was back then, okay, in 95 is the year I graduated from high school. <laughs> uh, it's making, I got a job making $1,500 a month, which was a lot for a set. I was 17 when I graduated high school and to be 17, making $1,500 a month, not having any bills. That's a lot of money. So me and another friend, we were always out partying. I grew up in San Diego. So we were always in Tijuana partying (laughs) (laughs) and I wasn't having to study. I wasn't having to do that. So by the time it came and I did start going to school again, I'm giving you like, I'm trying to give you the most abridged version, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was super happy. And then I had a professor come up to me and he's like, you're no longer enrolled in my class. And I'm like, what do you mean? My parents' check had bounced. I couldn't go to school anymore. I couldn't afford to pay it, pay it myself because I wasn't working anymore because I wanted to go, go to school. So... Again, we, we say we have these plans and all of these things that we think we want to do. And then life happens. And what do you do? Like, but I think it was, it's that innate thing, that thing in my core. I'm a fighter, I think, to my core. In some way, shape, or form, I believe in myself. And I haven't always believed in myself, but I think there was that, like I said, I internalized that from all the things that my mom told me when I was younger. But also you know, I know I'm a fighter and I'm not going to let things hold me down for long. And so you figure out a way. And I eventually figured out a way. And I didn't even graduate college till I was 37 years old. Almost 20 years to the day that I graduated high school. Was it, do you think it was difficult to be yourself in school? Just like potentially, um, you know, being a different age than than some of the students potentially? I don't know. No, I think by then it it definitely wasn't. I, but it was all the professors because I was working full-time and going to school full-time. So 
oftentimes the prof the professors always thought I was a grad student because a lot of situations I had already been in. Mm. You know, public relations was my major and I minored in Spanish and a lot I was already working in PR and marketing at the time. So a lot of various situations I was like, "Oh yeah, this is what I've done before, blah blah blah." So a lot of times the professors forgot that I wasn't a grad student. <laughs> and um but no, I mean, I was actually really surprised when I graduated because I didn't start, I went to the University of North Texas is where I graduated from, but I started, um, I went to Brookhaven, which is like their community college for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I transferred and I was shocked because when I graduated, when we had our, our college graduation, which means the school of journalism, which is what I was in the Mayborn school of journalism, I hadn't gone to school with these people for a year. I had only gone to school with them maybe two or three years mm. and I'm like the second to last person because of my last name Yanyes, right <laughs> which I had to teach them how to pronounce because they weren't sure how to pronounce it so I had to make sure they pronounced it the right way and the like everybody was cheering for me and I was like what the heck because I didn't think that I had made an impact on anybody i was just in school and these kids right were like 21 22 years old i freaking could have been a teen mom of one of them <laughs> <laughs> and i so i thought it was for the longest time i thought it was because i'm the second to last one and they were just excited and then somebody told me no we were cheering for you everybody was like oh my gosh she's so nice she's so nice we love her and i was like really but i was fully like at that age i was just fully myself i was but i was still very focused because when there's something i want yeah. dude i'm like super laser focused on it yeah no i love that and it's crazy it's so it's so interesting that you were working while you were um while you were studying as well like i i always say like i think i went to school way too early like i needed i needed some sort of like real world experience to contextualize like all the stuff that I was learning mm -hmm. and I'm more of a hands-on learner. So for me, like you saying, like you were working in PR and then going to class and be like, Oh yeah, now that makes sense. Cause I just did that. Like, I wish I had all that. Like all these concepts were just like going way over my head. Um, but yeah. And it's interesting too. Like you've been working for, um, for a while, like you started at 17, like, but I'm sure like that job where you started at 17 compared to like, you know, quote unquote corporate America is a little bit different. Like, were oh, yeah. you, were you different in who you were at 17 compared to like when you started working? Like, in oh, that quote unquote, real job. Yeah. Well, my first job was as a cashier at Target when I was 15. That was oh, my first yeah. Oh, went full circle. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So that was my very first job. And then my first full-time job was, yeah, at 17 and I had a lot of different things in between where I worked full time, where I've worked at a restaurant, where I've worked in offices, where I've worked, you know, like I've, I kind of feel like <clears throat> everything I did where I was trying to figure out, and I think kids should have a gap year, right? Of whether it's traveling or whether it's working or whether it's doing something because we pressure so our young people to figure out what they're supposed to do so early. I mean, we I have, 
right? We have people like, you're five years old. Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Bitch, I don't know what I want to be. I'm five years old. Like, right? <laughs> Can you imagine if some five-year-old looks at you and be like, I'm five, I don't know. Yeah. I'd be like, good for you at this point. I'd be like, good for you. You shouldn't know. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, we, we have this pressure to on these, these, our young people to do something so quickly. And how many times do people graduate and they don't ever, they don't even end up working in what they went to college for yeah. because they realized once they started working in it, how much they didn't enjoy it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I have how I've heard that so many times. Unless it's like a doctor. I actually have a lot of attorney friends that are no longer attorneys because they're like, I can't take the hours anymore. I'm burnt out. I want to actually have a life. Right. Um, so you definitely change. I mean, I was a teenager when I first started working. I was about it's so it's so funny. Uh I today I was I did like a TikTok that said when I'm in my 20s. Like the girl I was when I was in my 20s, I was a girl, I was young, I was cute, I was confident, I was like, I don't care, I can make mistakes. And then I'm in my 30s, you know what, I don't care what anybody thinks because I like myself and mind your business. And now I'm in my 40s, I'm like, I'm a badass bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like the summary for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but what was it like going into those to those environments? Like, is is it just a matter of growing old, like getting older and the more the older you get, the more confident you are? I, I mean, I think that's natural for everybody, right? The older you get, the more you get to know yourself, the more confident you become in the person that you are. I've always been in innately i've always been somebody who kind of has a big mouth who's known to not shut up <laughs> but i had to learn i think at one point i felt like i had to learn how to harness it but then at one point i muzzled myself mm. where i felt like oh maybe i'm being too much again like it's this theme of being too much where i felt like maybe i'm too much maybe i'm too much and i think it was just learning how to use that in the right way because being latina and being and having a big mouth people could call me fiery um ugh, right like oh she's just a fiery latina no just no oh. please don't even go there mm -hmm. um but i think it's not only knowing like it's the words you say how you say them and when you say them when you're using them and I think you have to learn that because I'm somebody who tends to just pop off at the mouth where I'm just say what I think. That's who we are though. Like, yeah. I walk and in the room. my friends, I can do that, right? Yeah. I could do that. And in certain situations, I could do that. And sometimes I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. I think I have less and less of those as I get older because I'm just, I think I've learned like, eh, that's not worth saying something about. Not everything is worth a response. And that's, I think, what I've learned as I've gotten older because I used to just pop off a lot more when I was younger. And then I would get called too much, too abrasive. I was called too, ab too abrasive was the, when I was in my early 20s, was the big one that I was called. People think you're too abrasive. Well, what is that? What do you mean I'm too abrasive? 
Like, mm-hmm. I didn't even know what that meant because I felt like it meant that I was being mean and I was never yeah. trying to be mean to somebody. But if I'm hired to do a job where I'm coaching others to do something and I'm telling them that they're not like how to do it the right way, how does that make me abrasive? Like, I'm not your mama. I'm not here to like coddle you. Yeah. But then I had to realize that when you're in a position of leadership, it's up to you to conform how you're saying things to the person because you're leading a group of people rather than the group of people conforming to you because everybody has different ways that they take things that they respond. So that was something like, it was easier for me as one person to figure out how everybody needs to hear things and say it in those ways that would be the most impactful to those people than having 15 people conform to me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting hearing some of those like similar feedback as when you were younger um as far as like quote unquote being too much which is just like what the hell does that mean but i'm wondering was that triggering to you in 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 a way as far as like hearing that and being like oh shit i'm doing that again or because in this space you're a little bit more confident and you've you're 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 in a different space just like mentally and everything right like that and then just like was your adjustment just like trying to figure out how to say the same thing but just like tweak it yeah i mean i was still in my early 20s when i was when i was called this or was i guess it was kind of throughout my 20s and i would act like it didn't affect me Mm. and then go home and be really sad about it yeah because i felt like nobody liked me and i didn't i didn't grow up with that like when I was in high school, yeah, I went through a period in middle school, but it wasn't nobody liked me. It was very specific people that I had challenges with, but I still ha- always had a lot of friends and I still had people I could count on. And through high school, I was, I guess, popular, whatever. I don't know, but I had a lot of friends. I hate saying that word, you know, but I, cause I wasn't like hugely popular. I knew a lot of people, people knew me, but I wasn't, I never felt like I was popular, like in sure. the traditional sense. Yeah, um, yeah. but so then when you go in your twenties and you're in this job and then you feel like you're doing your, you feel like you're doing your best and then you're being told that people don't like you. Cause that's basically what I was told is people don't like you. Mm. And I had never really in a big sense felt that. And I didn't understand it. And I think, yes, I tried to figure those out and how to say those things in nicer ways to the person. But that I think really is where I learned. I didn't know the term code switching, but that's where I learned to do it in that time. And the funny thing is, is that the department I worked at was very diverse, Mm. was super diverse. And yet I still had to do that. Yeah, it hurt. And it, and it really affected me. And I, I think that affected me in more ways. Like I think it affected me professionally and affected me personally because I took that home. It's, you know, when you're yeah. being told that you're abrasive and people don't like you, that's hard to leave at the door when you walk out the office. Mm-hmm. 
because I had, that's the, when I had just moved to Texas too, I had moved to Dallas for this job, got promoted very quickly and then convinced my best friend to move to Dallas and she got a job in my department and everybody loved her and everybody I felt hated me. Like I'm being told people don't like me. And then she comes in and everybody loves her. It was just a really weird, it was a really weird, rough time in my life. And I never would talk about it with anybody. I went into a depression, um, had to take medication and people didn't even know because I didn't feel like I could tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And we, me and my best friend, although we lived together, we had completely different experiences. And so she saw a change in me, but she didn't know. She just knew that this wasn't the Jessica that she grew up with. Mm-hmm. And she was beginning not to like that person either. I wasn't liking myself and she wasn't liking that person. So it really impacted everything. Who were you in your code switching? I'm, I'm curious to know, like, what was some of the things that you suppressed or tried to hide um, of yourself? Because in many ways, like code switching is like, hiding it and then showing another version, right? Um, I think, well, first of all, this part wasn't code switching. This part was just being very homesick and very naive that I would, I had never been to Texas before moving to Texas. Never even visited Texas. Yeah. Never even visited, yeah. So I moved to Dallas knowing one person staying at my friend's house. Like I have to ask him and his girlfriend if I can stay there until I find a place. And I missed California. So I would be like, well, in California, apparently I would be like in California in California in California. And that annoyed people rightfully so, but nobody <laughs> would say, but nobody would tell me that. Right. Mm-hmm. They would just hold it in. And then apparently talk about me behind my back. You know, just tell me how, like, there's, I think in any sort of relationship, work, friendship, romantic, whatever, familial, people can, are not mind readers. So if you're unable to share with them what is happening, they cannot change that behavior. Right. So nobody ever told me. And so apparently I would say it a lot. And then Texas has its own vernacular. <laughs> so people would say, and again, this is this is not part of the code switching. This is just a different region and regional things, right? So people say, I'm fixing to do this. And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a Florida thing too. Yeah. What are you? Nothing is broke. What are you fixing? <laughs> I don't understand. And they're like, no, no, no. And then then you take it to the next level, right? Like with my I was going, one of my friends, Stephanie, she's like, I'm taking you to black church with me. I'm like, all right, cool. Let's go. And we're on our way. And she's like, I finna this, I finna that, I finna, finna, finna. And I'm like, um, Stephanie, I, I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) And she's like, what? I said, what the hell is finna? You finna what? And she's like, oh girl, that's just short for I'm fixing to. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I don't even, like I have to learn fixing and finna and bless your heart and this and that. Like I had to learn a whole new language. I am yeah. not kidding, moving to Dallas. And it was just, 
just, it was just really crazy. But the time, like I, I think I went the opposite with my code switching when, when I was in the office, because I felt like I had to be so business that I didn't let people necessarily see my personality. And that may have been from my previous experiences, my previous experiences feeling like, you know, I'm here for business and this is what I do. What do you, what do you mean? Like straight to business? Like, what does that look like? What does that sound like? Um, well, I think it's, you know, it's that, it's that phone voice, right? Like if I'm on a phone professionally, I'm not, I think you hear little things of an accent when I say certain words, even in high school, I did it. Okay. I would get made fun of because I say three and through, and I was the only Latina on the cheer squad. And there is a cheer saying Eagles bust through that. I literally had to say Eagles bust go big blue because you would hear the the me rolling mm-hmm. my r's in through mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're like jay all we can hear is the r <laughs> and so i like i learned that early where i guess i don't sound the same or i guess me rolling my r's is a problem and yeah. when i started working i started realizing like people didn't sound like me People weren't mm-hmm. as loud as mm-hmm. have as big of a personality as I do. <laughs> and so I had to start suppressing that because I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously. So by the time I got to this position in Dallas, I think I suppressed so much of myself yeah. that that's what I was focused on. Because then it was, like I said, it was kind of the opposite code switching because it's, but as soon as I started letting people see my personality, then because it was such a diverse team, management wasn't diverse, but the teams were diverse. And as soon as I started letting the team see my personality, it was like people started to like me. People started to understand me and they're like, why didn't you let us see this part? Why didn't you let us know this is who you were? But then when I would have to go into meetings with management, I would have to code switch back to that person, mm-hmm. back to that like business focused person. So it was a very interesting, yeah, like, quote unquote, yeah. like, yeah, quote unquote, professional person. And it was just a really weird time. Like I said, because it was by the time I left that position, I was sad to leave. Everybody was sad to see me leave. Like I had made friends, people I'm still friends with to this day. And, but had I not let them see my personality, that wouldn't have been the case. Like people were ready to freaking throw me to the wolves when I first started there, because I was, I felt like I had to be so, I had to hide my personality so much. Yeah. And I love the fact that you touched on the benefit of being yourself, right? Because I think many times we're scared because of like our previous experiences. And then when we are ourselves, sure, like some microaggressions happen, but I think for the majority of the time, people embrace who we really are, right? And then it's like, oh shit, like, and then you start building relationships with people because they yeah. see who you are and they see you're funny and, and like caring and all these things. And you're like, damn, I should have done this sooner, but it's difficult, it's not easy. 
You know what I mean? Like it takes a certain level of experience and confidence and all these things to finally start doing that. And I think part of it's like when you show people who you really are, they're going to like you. If you already feel like you're unliked, well, if I show who I really am, are they, are they going to like me or are they still going to hate me? <laughs> Yo, that was my experience at uh, my last job. I had a point where I cried and I don't, I don't uh. cry often. Um, I didn't cry at work, but it's, it's going back to your point. It's like, I, I put up this facade at work. Yeah. Oh, how, my day? Oh, just living the dream. Everything's going well. Oh, couldn't, couldn't be happier. Then when I got home, just one day I was like, yo, I, I broke down. I was like, yo, I'm so tired of faking it, putting up this facade and acting like everything's okay. And I was like, so ready to quit. And I got to the point where I was like, all right, you know what, if I quit or if I'm gonna get fired, it's not going to be because of this person that I'm trying to be like, I'm gonna go out on my own terms. Right. And, and I went into work and I was like, you know, fuck it. I told my whole team, I was like, I've been lying to y'all for like the past few months. And they were like, what are you talking about? I was like, I've just been faking it. And they and I like gave a bunch of examples and they were like, what? Uh, but yeah. And then things like, that's when I started thriving at work and like at my last job and, and getting all these accolades and all these things. But, um, yeah, I feel you like so, so much of your story resonates with me. And um, yeah, that's when I started building relationships with like people and senior leaders and, and all these other things. But um, I love the fact that, you know, your journey is from, you know, being bullied and like hiding who you were to now just being confident and seeing the benefits of being yourself, right? Um, but you do so much outside of work as well. And I love the work that you're doing in the wine industry, specifically for our community. And this quote that you said on Clubhouse, I will never forget it, but I'm going to butcher it. So please correct me. But it was like- I already know which quote you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. All right. It was like, when you think of Latinos in, 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 in the wine industry, you think of the farmers, not the producers. You and think that, of us owning, working the land, not owning the brands. Yes. And that is so important because I think that also applies to corporate America as well. Like we often think of us as the employees, but not the executives yeah. in, in a lot of these companies. Right. So, you know, many, many, in many ways, what I'm trying to do in various industries is like create that representation to show that there are people in leadership roles. There are people in executive roles that look like us and are being themselves um, and that what you're doing in, in wine is, is resonate with me. Cause I don't know any Latino wine owners or distributors or any of that stuff. Right. So like, I want to touch on like, why was that so important for you to start building that representation for? You know, when I started the podcast, it was really to amplify voices coming across, coming from all communities of color. And I was like, let's, put a twist on it. I love wine. I've always had like these wine and cheese nights as far back as I can remember for the last 15, 20 years. And I was like, let's make it fun and everything. And then I started it three weeks before the pandemic. And I didn't realize like what I was going to hit upon in these interviews, because a lot of people I've been so blessed with so many truly amazing people sharing their stories with me. And we've hit on a lot of things obviously things that were happening with George Floyd right before, um, actually right before the pandemic hit, I interviewed one of the girls from black lives from, uh, 
not the Black Lives Matter. She's from, I, I'm going to butcher the name all of a sudden. It's, um, it's like the Black women of San Diego one mm-hmm. before the pandemic. So this is even before George Floyd and everything. And I was like, there's going to be a march. Yeah, I want you on the podcast. Let's talk about it. I want to hear your experience. Mm-hmm. And then we go into the pandemic mode. And then I get to talk to these people and I'm drinking wine and it's been really great. And for some reason, one day I'm like, you know, are there any Latino winemakers? I don't really know if there are. Why haven't I checked? Because I was just going out to Trader Joe's or wherever, (laughs) buying wine all the time. And I was thinking, you know, if I'm spending this much money on wine, like I want to support, I need to know if there are winemakers in our community that I could support. So I just started Googling. And I found MAVA, which is the Mexican American Vintners Association. And I found them on Instagram and sent them a direct message. And I kind of started touching with some of them, but not hadn't really truly engaged with a lot of them yet. And then finally, the president of MAVA got back with me. And he's like, you know, I'm so sorry it took me so long. My wife saw this and asked if I had gotten back with you. And I wanted to get back with you. So I talked to him on the phone, told him what I wanted to do because I had started asking around, asking people, do you know that there are Latino wine, like brand owners? Nine out of 10 people that I asked said no clue Mm -hmm. or they knew one, but that was it. And at that point I was like, no, this is not acceptable. And if nobody's like at that point, I was like, is anybody doing anything about it? And I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't find anything. And I was like, then I will, then I will. I love wine. I love my community. I want to be there to support our community. And I'm going to, I have to do something. And so I started working with Mava. We just, I took a road trip up to Portland to see my sister and on the way, I spent two nights in Napa and I got to meet some of the vintners. Oh, tasted some amazing wine. <laughs> they wined and dined me here. I'm the one, I'm the one wanting stuff, you know, wanting to help. And they're like, let's take you out to dinner. Let's fly you with wine. I'm like, no problem. I say yes to that. <laughs> Damn it. I started, I started a podcast in the, in the wrong genre. <laughs> God, I'm over here talking about careers. I should be talking about with wine yeah Yeah. and they're like let's do it after harvest so september october is harvest and we did it in november the first wine tasting we did four vintners one wine four weeks one wine each week and i thought oh we'll do this every six months so we did it i had you know between 12 and 20 people each week that wanted to participate and then after it was done my friends were like when's the next wine tasting And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) We want to do another one. I'm like, you do? Yeah. Okay. And I had already built a relationship with another vintner. So I called this other vintner. I was like, hey, I know this is last minute, but we just did this wine tasting and people want to do another one. Are you down? He's like, yeah, whatever you want to do, just tell me. And I was like, okay. And we did one in December. And then we did one in January. In February, we didn't do one because we did a celebration to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the podcast, but now we're doing one again for March, and now I have them scheduled for the next several months because I've really done a lot of push into 
reaching out to these vintners and saying, look, this is what I'm doing. I've also created the first, mo the most comprehensive list of Latino winemakers based in the United States. Love that. Because you have winemakers in Argentina, you have winemakers in Chile, yeah. you have there, so there are winemaker you in Mexico, but I'm talking about vintners in the U.S. Latino vintners that are based in the United States. Those are the yeah. ones we do not know about. Yeah. And so I've created I created the most comprehensive list. So it's on there right now, but I'm even creating a a better list than the one that I already have on my yeah. website because I'm working with the vintners to get a couple of sentences of what they, what, how they describe their, their winery yeah. Yeah. and sorting it out by state and by region. So people yeah. can really access that. And it's just, it's a passion that I didn't realize was going to come from all of this yeah. because I've loved wine, but I never took the time to educate myself on wine. Mm -hmm. I've recently just taken my first wine education test. Are you about to be a sommelier? No, I'm not. I don't. I'm not planning on to be a sommelier, but I want to get like finish the whole certification program. So there's four levels, and I've just taken my test for level one, and now I have to. I'm waiting for the enrollment for level two to begin again, so I can enroll in level two, and then level three and level four, and get my. Like I want to be really educated and pass that on because we, most of us in our community, we didn't grow up with wine. No way. Right. It yeah. Was, like for me, it was a, uh, well, Presidente, like that Dominican beer and, and rum. Yeah. So for us here, it was beer, right? I think everybody mostly drank Budweiser. Um, it was beer <laughs> and tequila and beer. yeah, <laughs> right. You know, my, my, well, my tia would say, uh, she would sit there with her beer and she, she's still alive. She's the last one, but uh, she would say, I'd be like, Thea, you drink all the time. She's like, no, I don't drink all the time. I only drink when I'm with family. I just practice when I'm at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And I was well, like, it's so dope what you're doing too, because it's not, like by raising awareness, you are shifting perception of a whole industry, right? Like you're seeing, and oh my God, like you got to make a t-shirt of that quote. It's so dope. Because, because <laughs> yeah. I, and I think, I think the same thing could be said for, um, for tequila brands. Like it's, it's sad to see um, like us being thought about as the farmers but the Kardashians being seen as the owners, you know what I mean? And like, it breaks my heart and it gets me yeah. so mad. Because and then you, then the thought behind that, my first thought behind that was how much is she paying the, the people that are farming? Yeah. Yeah. Gave for her. Like, what is she? Exactly. Is, are they, are these people being paid a living wage? Yeah. Yeah. And then she's using it. She's not a freaking. we know she's not a tequila expert. <laughs> like, a good tequila, you don't need to put ice in it. Come on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you don't become a tequila expert in four years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we can talk about this forever, though. But um, I don't want to take up too much time. So I'll, I'll wrap up with this final question. Like, what's, what's one thing that continues to empower and inspire you to be your most authentic self? I think... I want to I want to continue learning and growing and be my most authentic self because I 
see my nephews and I want them to know that it's okay for them to be whoever they are. And my nieces, I want them to love themselves fully and completely and to not allow others to put their judgments on them and know that it's okay to be yourself. And I think it's important to continue to be my authentic self because I was talking to a friend today and I was saying, you know, God has given me the gift of, yes, I could say the gift of gab, but beyond that, he's given me the gift of allowing me to be in the presence of people and people feeling comfortable with me that they want to share their stories. And that's important. And if you're not authentic, people don't want to do that. And that continues to drive me because there's so many stories out there that are not being told that need to be told. And I, I want to do everything that I can to embrace those people, bring those people in and be able to help them amplify their voices.